I want to pick up the question of wage slavery again uh, in the second half um, and um, and the dignity of work and also maybe this anti-work movement that had a moment. Um, let's see what you think of that mm-hmm. um, and return to Jacobin. But I think um, this is a great hour. I think it went really well, Spencer, and, and uh, I hope people will tune in to the Patreon as well. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. So Spencer Leonard is here, and uh, we're going to be talking about Compact, the new um, socially conservative but still left. Is that how they're selling themselves? That that they say? Um, magazine. I think that um, they think of it as like a kind of conservative, a project of like conservative welfare statism, mm-hmm. you know, like a pro worker, nationalist, religious, communitarian, uh, you know, so they're really, they're really leaning into the anti-woke. Right. Yeah. But the, um, the, this idea that if it wants you like, a while back, Glenn Greenwald got in trouble on Twitter uh, because he said in an interview, which I believe was on Fox, but it may have been for a publication, but he said that Tucker Carlson was a socialist. Um, and he, he, he actually said that a bunch of people were socialists that were kind of right wing. Um, and the what he meant was they were opposed to the neoliberal consensus in this moment and they had some kind of Fordist or New Deal uh, affinity, some affinity for the New Deal. I don't know how deep uh, Tucker Carlson's commitment is to uh, that, but I, I talked to Greenwald about that statement, actually. That's the, uh, the one time I interviewed him was based on him having said that, and I said, look, there's another view of what socialism is. But once you ad- adopt this view of socialism, that it is simply anything that's opposed to neoliberalism and wants to be redistributist in its uh, policies and like, and and increase the welfare state, then yeah, anything can pass as left at that point, including fascism, you know? Indeed. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's a lot to say that, you know, But I'm I mean, not trying to bash well, compact out of, the, out of the gate. The left, you know, uh, traditionally the left, you know, is critical of the welfare state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that is a project of capitalist politics, um, right? And of course, you know, the, that changed, um, and you know, it changed in part through the New Deal uh, and through Stalinist support for post-war social democracy uh, in, in Europe, in, you know, in Western Europe. Um, so there, 
you know, when we, it, and Jacobin, you know, and we should get, to, we should talk about this. You know, Jacobin is unclear about this point. Right. Right. Because on the one hand, you know, and I definitely want to come back around to this. Um, on the one hand, they started off, Boscar started off talking about Kautsky and socialism. Mm -hmm. You know, he was very um, impressed or or taken with the kind of neo-Kautskyanism that people were thinking about in the CPGB, in you know, in the Communist Party of Great Britain. Um, you know, something like Mike McNair's revolutionary strategy. Um, mm -hmm. If you look at you know those, you know what Bosker is talking about in the early issues of of Jacobin um, and early interviews. You know, this is what he's talking about, and 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 that has to do, you know, that has nothing to do with the welfare state. You know, that has to do with mass political parties for socialism. I mean, if if by Kautsky what you mean is German social democracy before World War One, mm -hmm. right? What you're talking about, or Second International Socialism, you're talking about a politics that was prosecuted or developed uh, in civil society, right? That did not administer capitalism, did not advocate for any kind of policy, um, opposed all policies of the capitalist state, not, mm -hmm. not one man, not one penny. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, but so, so there's that. And, 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 and then there's the, the kind of um, Ralph Miliband making of peace with the welfare state, you know, Ralph Miliband and then, you know, in, in, in living memory, um, you know, the, the, our recently departed comrade Leo Panich, mm -hmm. uh, who was an important advisor, I think, uh, for Bhaskar. You know, of course, he had a lot of, uh, got a lot of education uh, in the DSA mm -hmm. uh, from people like Joseph Schwartz. Um, and you see this turn in, like, Our Road to Power, the Vivek Chibber. Mm -hmm. sort of manifesto for Jacobin, which is really, you know, the articulate, um, you know, sort of theoretical journal of the DSA. And it Jacobin is Jacobin is. Yeah. Cause there's Jacobin and there's also catalyst, right. Which is our actual theory journal. Um, right. That's more like if you're, you know, if you belong to the DSA and you know you're an advanced graduate student and you've got some papers that your professors thought might be publishable, you can throw them into Catalyst. <laughs> okay, okay. Sort of quasi-respectable, or you know, I mean, it, definitely Jacobin is much more political. You know, he deals with current issues and mm -hmm. young activists in the DSA. You know, which is what most of the DSA is. Um, yeah, they're going to read that. And, um, you know, so to talk, to come back to this compact article, uh, you know, you and I, of course, are engaged in a common endeavor of launching a new 
leftist media and publishing enterprise. Right. Including a magazine, which you are the editor-in-chief of. Yeah. Including a magazine, which I'm the editor-in-chief of, Sublation Magazine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can't help but look at something like Compact Magazine, which is also a recently floated uh, publishing venture, and, you know, see myself in a certain funhouse mirror right there. Now, of course, they are conservative. I mean, I think that the bottom line is they're conservative, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's a kind of a post-leftism to uh, Edwin Aponte, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is the way he would put it. Um, but, you know, the other two of the three leading editors are just frankly conservative. The one who wrote this article on Jacobin is one of those, a frankly conservative uh, founding editor named uh, Sorab Ahmadi. Mm-hmm. So these people, I guess I would say, yeah, it is similar. You, you know, you brought up Tucker Carlson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that Tucker Carlson is a kind of you know, his insights come from, you know, to the extent that he has them, you know, he, like they, and to a degree, like the DSA, though I think the DSA is not really sure about this, um, you know, they're all at some level anti-neoliberal. Now, just stating it like that, I think the DSA would be perfectly um you know, fine with that. You know, in many ways, you know, DSA people will talk about, they'll, they'll use the word neoliberalism almost as if, uh, especially in their more sort of statist aspects, almost as if it's a synonym for capitalism. Yeah, no, that happens all the time. It has for a while. People right. replace, they switch out neoliberalism. It's actually it used to be a little bit more common than it is now but it like two three four years ago i would read articles where they would say capitalism in one sentence neoliberalism in the next as if they are just you know it's the same concept in different words uh so that that's pretty it was always aggravating to me when that would happen right so you know just as part of my cultural observance political observance mm-hmm. um you know i tend to watch you know the occasional at least opening of of tucker carlson tonight Mm -hmm. and last night the whole segment was named the end of neoliberalism and it was a critique of the republican and the democratic party that for being wed to neoliberalism which he describes as essentially a kind of predatory finance capitalism uh, dressed up with, um, you know, wokeness. And of course it's very weak, right? But it's because, you know, this isn't, you know, there's no doubt that, that, that neo, that they're jumping up and down on the grave of neoliberalism. Right. Right. And, you know, that's the problem of, you know, I think Trump more honestly than Sanders, you know, 
recognize that, you know, there is going to be a new organization of capitalism, you know, in, in kind of classic conservative uh, form, he thought, you know, well, we're just going to negotiate this, right? It's going to be the art of the deal. Uh, you know, in that sense, we're going to be conservatives and we're going to muddle through sort of question. I want to point out, I want to point out that like five, six years ago, Chris told me this exact same thing. And I kind of thought, well, yeah, that's because Trump is a Philistine and is a businessman. And I had this sort of reaction to, to hearing that, that was like, uh, I think a pretty typical left reaction was like, uh, Trump. But now you say they, the Republicans just came, were kind of come in and just wanted to negotiate this and do the art of the deal. That that's like saintly. This, right in this moment you know right. like, because because you a businessmen because you because because businessmen are honest opportunists right they're a lot okay. more civilized than these politicians who want to stretch out the war in ukraine uh in order to have some long-term they think political advantage uh, uh from that outcome i mean the, trump comes in and says we'll make a deal but that's like diplomacy that's like the of upside of that's what that is what capitalism promises it's that it can be is that everyone wins very bourgeois deal yeah exactly yeah Trump was a lot more bourgeois than they were willing to grant you know right. I, was, I was reading in I, I was reading uh in preparation for our discussion um you're just looking around in, the, in some of the recent issues of Jacobin mm-hmm. Uh, the one from when Biden is taking office, like winter 2020, I think it is. Um, and it's the, the name of the issue was Biden, our time. And, you know, they were, com- they were complaining, you know, they were saying, well, well at least we're going to get back into the Kyoto climate accords right because you know because donald trump just had a burn it all attitude burn it all down you know commitment to fossil fuels or whatever mm-hmm. um you know i i don't even think that they could make that argument you know obviously donald trump had an argument about um you know the environmental crisis his argument was the more production you get to return to the united states and away from China and India, the cleaner the production will be. That was his environmental program, right? Which isn't wrong. Which isn't wrong, which isn't wrong, which is, which is, which is a much more honest confrontation with the limits of capitalism than Mm -hmm. the idea that we're we're going to allow some international agreement to deny the aspirations of workers. I mean, Donald Trump's argument was we're going to die, deny the aspirations of Indian and Chinese workers in right. favor of American workers. And by the way, that will boost the American economy and that will be better for the Indian and the Chinese in the long run. Right, right, right. Because we'll right. lead the way out of the recession, yeah. uh, et cetera. But I don't want to get in, lost in these details. What I want to say is that Compact Magazine is very similar to Tucker Carlson, right? Because on the one hand, he's a, you know, Tucker Carlson is a Christian conservative very right wing, um, you know, cannot comprehend bourgeois values, really can't. So he, you know, he, he thinks like the, 
the Declaration of Independence is an expression of Christianity, right? I mean, he, he really doesn't get it. Um, and these guys don't get it, right? They are, you know, in favor of traditional values. They're in favor of community, and that's how you can get the workerism in there. Do you know why? Like, how would Tucker Carlson explain the Declaration of Independence in terms of Christianity? I mean, what do you, you explain know, it in terms of the Reformation? Equal, right? That we know that all men are created equal from the Bible, right? That this is these are Christian values. Right? I mean, there's there's some truth to that, right? The, there's the some truth. There's some Hegelian truth to that. That yeah, know, yeah, right, right. Like, like Hegel calls bourgeois society Christian, right. right? But what he means by that is the Christianity that has gone through the Protestant Reformation, that right. has gone through the secularization of the Enlightenment into the French Revolution. Right. <laughs> right. By that he means Christianity, right? In other words, right. You know, uh, but yeah, the. But Tucker Carlson will also invite, um, I'm, I'm forgetting his name, Chris, no, oh. Chris or Christian Small. Oh, yeah, Chris Small. Yeah, the I've interviewed organizer, him. Right? Yeah, I've interviewed um, him uh, twice um, and I right. uh, in, in the early days. And when I saw him on Tucker Carlson, I thought, oh, my God. And then, well, first, he was on Tucker Carlson after a, bi a big win at the Staten Island right. Warehouse. And and I thought, oh my God, uh, Chris has done it. Like he became like when I was a little skeptical of his project, I thought it was going to just get absorbed by the left. But then I saw him on Tucker Carlson recently. Said he hasn't been absorbed by the left. He's actually trying to do something. <laughs> I know that sounds uh, really cynical about the left, but no, he was great because Tucker yeah. was trying to set him up to say something nasty about Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Right. right. He, he said, you know, well, where was AOC? You know, at, and Chris Small's response was, well, none of them were there. Right. Right. And I thought that was just great, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, because he accepted the point that Tucker was making right. while saying, you know, but that's because she's a capitalist politician. Um, <laughs> right. Know, yeah. That was, that was, at least promising as a moment uh, in culture, right? But you know, and 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 he and people actually on Twitter, people blue check mark leftists actually went after Chris Smalls for lending Tucker Carlson leftist credentials or whatever by going on that show. I mean, right. I it's just astounding to me that that right. I mean, so the the, the absurdity of that that the 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 gobsmacking character of that mm -hmm. of you know the stupidity of you know, contemporary Democrats on a point like that, um, you know, that to not even understand that, you know, a workers organization is not just an auxiliary to a political party. Right. Right. But is rooted in civil society and in a particular struggle with particular interests at stake mm -hmm. and obviously is not going to subordinate itself to whatever political imperative you think is served by trying to starve Tucker Carlson of oxygen by denying his invitations, right? Uh, it's so stupid that it gives scope to Compact Magazine, mm -hmm. right? Which is like the anti-woke, you know, pro-labor, but 
assumes in its anti-wokeness that you know the working class is the real constituency for conservatism right so it's pro-family pro-religion etc um and you know, they can have a field day uh with jacobin magazine today you know a magazine that really you know captured a moment that you know is the single most unmistakable expression of the millennial left mm. right of the millennial generation you know it was it's in and you know when when young people held jacobin jacobin magazine in their hands they thought my generation is taking up the mantle of the left right and we have to acknowledge there's nothing like it in our generation doug no right, right? there isn't a gen x like i gen x left iconic expression no there's only a bunch of zines right at, at best you know like and and all of them were fragmented None of them were right, and they into. felt like they were continuations of an underground that had been going on, you know, from before right. our time. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And right. they probably had been. Come to right. think of they it, they were. Um, you know, so that project, which you know, as I was trying to suggest, you reached for Marxism, mm -hmm. you know, reached for the real thing in some way like reached for, okay, what did this thing look like when there were mass parties for socialism in the first world? Very important question to ask, right? What does that look like? You know, it's one thing to ask, you know, what Marxism looks like as a kind of guerrilla war. It's quite another to ask what it looks like in the United States or Germany or England or France. Uh, and that's that's not to disparage, you know, any um, guerrilla warfare. Any guerrilla warfare is completely irrelevant politically. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that as an American leftist, Boscar is asking some salient questions early on. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, the world does need the first world left to ask these questions. Yeah. But it you know, that question of like mass politics of mass socialist politics immediately got translated into or very soon by 2015 got translated into um, the floating of the Sanders campaign you know and I think by the end of 2015 uh, that process was fairly complete uh, you know where the DSA was cheerleading uh, and you know, really involved with Sanders and, and, you know, implying or suggesting some sort of reorientation strategy, mm -hmm. right? So from talking about like rebooting in some way, however vaguely conceived, the socialism of the 19th century, mm -hmm. we move to a rebooting of the realignment strategy of the DSA in the 1960s, mm -hmm. which failed, 
And mm -hmm. it was never clear how it wasn't going to fail this time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now they are two Sanders elections in, you know, and the and, and they have brought a generation into the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And that party's done nothing. It has accomplished nothing. It has accomplished less than you could have expected Trump to accomplish in terms of infrastructure spending, in terms of, you know, investing in the economy, trying to do something, you know, to, to, to address the economic ills that beset the country. And it's fully on board with the war in the Ukraine. And it's apparently fully on board with like state censorship now. And the left is completely silent on these issues or mealy mouthed in a fatal way about it. And it's the end of the road, right? I mean, the end of the road has been reached a long time ago and we, you know, I was certainly saying. Uh, I, I feel compelled. I don't know. The inner Democrat in me feels compelled to, to see if I can muster some objections here. Let me see if I can. Have at it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, Good luck. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. Uh, well, the first thing I'll, I'll, I'll say is, that, and this I'll say something that seemed more true a few years ago than it does now, um, but I can understand, I'm sympathetic to the impulse to hold on to a neoliberal order in the face of, the, of its crackdown. Um, um, because uh, as, uh, you know, uh, inequitable and wrought with violence as that neoliberal order was what it didn't seem to threaten to do is bring all the world powers into direct conflict it was always the violence was on the periphery um and there was cooperation between the major imperial powers to some degree and um it established a relative peace of a kind um uh, especially after the cold war but even before um so the cracking up of the neoliberal order puts big imperial powers into competition with each other more directly, again, for resources, production, militarily, all of it. So that's a frightening prospect, which it goes back to, like, you know, why um, Trump seems saintly in comparison to what's going on now, but I'm not going to reiterate that too strongly. So I can see the Democratic Party um, memberships, you know, like the, the rank and file Democrats, uh, desire to hold on to neoliberalism, um, uh, and reluctant. So that that might account for some of the dragging of their feet as this happens, because it's the crack up is, is happening. Um, can I jump in here without yeah. mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. um, disrupting your thought? I don't want to do yeah, that. Yeah, go go ahead. Um, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we're going to, why we miss the neoliberal order. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, there was, broadly speaking, um, peace in the neo neoliberal epoch. I mean, there was, there were real problems in the Middle East, um, mm -hmm. for certain. But if we really think about what neoliberalism was, it was a organization of capitalism that was built by 
the left as we know it in an important way, right? It was a post-racial form of capitalism. It was a post-patriarchal form of capitalism. It substantially cashed out the project of the last meaningful gasp of the left before whatever the millennials were. I right. I don't know about that because I feel like the neoliberal order really emerged from Friedman and and um, Reagan. Yeah, but those, people, those people were anti-racist and anti-patriarchal. I mean, that's the thing. Well, Reagan might not have been in rhetoric, but politically but he, he was. Politically right? he was. Politically yeah. he was because you know even the worst of it, which you know, is the war on organized labor. You know, the plain fact of the matter is, is that organized labor under capitalist political leadership, as it had come down from the middle of the 20th century, was in very large measure in the United States, a labor brokerage project for white men. Right. It was not, you know, the idea that the the proletarianizing aspirations of a generation of women, right? mm -hmm. millions of people, millions and millions, tens of millions of workers mm -hmm. entered the American workforce just through the emancipation of women into, you know, a whole bunch of new sectors of the division of labor. Mm -hmm. And of course, this, you know, many sectors of the division of labor other than just the most miserable and degraded are being opened up to racial minorities. And that process couldn't be managed by the organized labor that existed. It just couldn't, it, you know, it, it, it could, I'm not saying that labor is incapable of those things or that labor is antagonistic to the emancipation of women or racial emancipation, but in the 1970s, it didn't happen. I thought it kind of did. I mean, I don't know, but maybe I'm just looking at the advertisements. I just remember, you know, in the seventies, you'd watch TV and there'd be advertisements for uh, the various trade unions and the, you know, they were, it was always, a, it was like a Benetton uh, sweater ad. It was always a multi-ethnic group of workers, always marching together. In oh summer. yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the labor militancy of the 1970s is extremely interesting where you have workers coming back from Vietnam, they've 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 had close comrades in arms from all over the world, you know. So they're from all over America, and they're coming back, you know, with very different sensibilities. Uh, as a result of that experience, you have the long-haired workers. You have you know you have strikes like at at, at Youngtown, um, you know, for you know less monotonous work. Uh, Etc. It's not just about wages and hours, um, mm -hmm. you know. And of course, you have um, you know young leftists who are entering the trade unions in large numbers in the 1970s as organizers. And you know, none of that is to be you know. I mean, obviously, people should understand that history because they're trying to replay it now in terms of this DSA rank and file strategy. And they're not, they're only dimly aware that it has been undertaken before. And they're not aware at all at just how serious it was, mm -hmm. um, you know, in by comparison to today. 
But all that I'm saying is that, you know, Reagan isn't really the opposite of the apotheosis of neoliberalism in Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. Right. We can all know that, broadly speaking, in the 1990s, the the world that you and I were young in, mm-hmm. society had changed. It had substantially yeah. changed. I mean, you know, racism was, you know, I I I went to school in Virginia. You know, I went to school at a at a university that, um, you know, was a white man ruling class playground, mm-hmm. segregated, and you know, didn't go co-ed or desegregate until the seventies. Mm-hmm. And by the time I entered it in nineteen eighty nine, I dare say it was just about like it was like any campus in America. I mean, I went to college with Jesse Jackson Jr. Mm-hmm at at uva Mm -hmm. and you know the world had really changed the south had certainly completely changed that's all that i'm trying to say is that you know neoliberalism was a a you know it, it was a place where you know you could broadly expect that people understood arguments about human equality you could expect that people could at least mouth the reasons why we respected the Bill of Rights, or we were happy to have the Bill of Rights. Or, well, oh yeah, but that nowadays that, you can't expect these things, right? Right. Nowadays, well, I mean, I don't know. But in, in the eighties and nineties, those things were still being contested, but they were being contested differently than now. The, in the eighties and nineties, the Republicans would be the ones questioning some of the. They would never question racial equality. Never question racial. Nobody equality. questioned. Nobody no. questioned. No, racial but they would. They, but, I ever heard. Yeah, but the right to free expression, the right to free speech was hotly contested uh, throughout the 80s, along around things that seem kind of trivial now, like, can you burn the flag? Should you go to prison if you burn the flag? These are the the uh, issues that I remember being um, debated right. in, in the 80s uh, under Reagan. Um, right, and, a conservative Supreme Court, you know, handled that and there was really no more politics about it right they said yes you can yes you can burn the flag and they <laughs> recited the liberal arguments that have been made for 200 years and everyone nodded their head and then like, oh, i guess that's right you know it it wasn't you know this is you know there's something wrong with these arguments Right. right now, it's well. Those arguments were made by racist slaveholders, <laughs> and those arguments are only made by people who want to call other, you know, people minority names. groups, you know, bad names. It's just for hate speech, um, mm. you know. So it wasn't like that, really. You know, it, it, all I'm trying to say is that you know we we get nostalgic because it looks like things are worse. You know, and the curious thing is that, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's easier to explain neoliberalism mm-hmm. in terms of the playing out of yes, a left that had failed, right? That mm-hmm. the conserv- that there's a conservative cashing out of a collapsing left, 
it's harder to see this world that we're entering in now as that. But to the extent that we can see the world as a product of the left, it looks like some kind of wake, I'm sorry, woke racist dystopia. It looks neo-segregationist. It looks, um, you know, anti-internationalist. It's not just that, like, we're entering into a new period of of inter-imperialist rivalry. We're entering into a period when the left has stopped thinking internationally, right? Like, the one of the great weaknesses of the left, and, it, and this is completely facilitated and amplified by their identification with the Labour Party, with the Democratic Party, etc., is that they focused entirely on domestic welfare state projects. Mm-hmm. And, you know, someone like Bhaskar Sankara can go on and on uh, in his book, The Socialist Manifesto, about Sweden, for God's sake, right? As if, like, Sweden is a is an argument for anything you know it's a fucking county of the world you know right and the other thing is talking uh, about like i don't know what you know the area around the five colleges in massachusetts or something also it has its own left history of failure sweden you know it has its own neoliberal turn uh you know of course right and and uh i have comrades who are swedish and uh, I've had them on the podcast a few times, and they tell me, like, you guys try to make Sweden into a utopia. Let me let, tell you what it's like to live here. Let me tell you how things are going in Sweden and sure. why the far right is having its day in Sweden. Um, no doubt. Right? No doubt. So, um, a- absolutely. But the, you know, the, the point is, is that you know, the yeah. Biden administration is, you know, just to give one example, the, the Biden administration is at least p- politically facilitating a attack by corporations on Russian civil society so that you know, social media corporations are limiting you know, Russians' ability to communicate, you know, much more grievously or much more dangerously. They're freezing bank accounts. They're mm-hmm. locking credit cards, right? All of a sudden, Visa and MasterCard aren't, like, expressions of the cosmopolitanism of money. They're expressions of a, a particularistically American military mm-hmm. project, right? And... You know, we don't. We have a left that just demanded, with its hair on fire, shrieking, in utter hysterics, to get this man elected. That is in the White House, that is doing these things. Who, of course, was already convicted of corruption with respect to the Ukraine in the court of public opinion, to the extent that public opinion was allowed to be ventilated, mm-hmm. and. There's no discussion of it. There's no critique of it. There's no critique of it in the pages of Jacobin magazine. Mm-hmm. Right? So we can't just talk about some sort of macro eco, you know, economic forces beyond our control leading to inter-imperialist rivalry. Right. The, the left is not internationalist. Right. Right. If we're right. going, you know, we're looking at this war in the Ukraine. It's a direct function of 
the failure of the left. Oh, that is absolutely. I mean, look, yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, uh, well, the way I look at it, it's like people you know, waving like, Ukrainian flags. Like if I it's take like, a not, yeah, you know, as if that's solidarity with Ukrainian people. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, I right. I mean, at this point, point solidarity with Ukrainian people would be to. Uh, marching on Washington, demanding that the, there would be a peaceful settlement in Ukraine. That would be solidarity with the Ukrainian people, I think. Um, and and or, you know, or you could you know, or or you could be a, a bleeding hearted liberal and give money to the Red Cross to go help refugees. Right, that's sure. at least within civil society. Right, that's right, that's right. Yeah. Um, but uh, which would be a good thing to do as well, and I support that. We'll put a link to the Red Cross in the in the description. We don't have to put a link. To that. <laughs> no, we will just for the, the hell of it. Um, uh, or, and it will just actually go to our Patreon. But um, and, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the the um, yeah the 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 thing I would want to raise is like uh, uh, I don't know how the left could have handled the post Cold War era. Uh, to change the conditions that we're in now. And like, I can't say this is what should have been done, but it's clear to me that a left that had any power would have been able to make sure that the cold war ended the kind of nuclear threat that existed at least between Russia and the United States. Maybe it wouldn't have been able to track down every nuke in the world. Maybe the problem of nuclear proliferation would have continued, but the least to put an end to this uh, insane pileup of nuclear weapons between the two major powers at that time would have been something that should have been within the the left's you know it should have been in, I mean, within the reach of a capitalist cap uh, capitalist politicians should have been able to do it but if, if they couldn't then the left should have been pushing for that should have I been think that they it. I think that they did I mean I, I think that um, I, I think that the uh, I, you know, I think things like the Cuban Missile Crisis were quite form formative for the new left, and mm -hmm. um, I think that the anti-nuclear movement, you know, was a you know straight down into the '80s. I mean, I think you know one of the ways that you can think about you know the fall of the uh, you know the, the the ending of the Cold War is just that the international left said like to the extent that this involves military confrontation, it's just not worth it. Right. It, it, um, I, I think that, you know, at that point, you know, there was so little real passionate, meaningful, politically credible, like investment, you know, and, and the people of Eastern Europe and Russia, you know, they wanted Paul McCartney to come play a concert, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Billy it, Joel. They, yeah. They went wanted, to Moscow. Mm -hmm. You know, but the, 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 you know, the point, you know, in other words, there's a reversal, right? That, that, you know, we seem to be entering into, you know, a more dangerous period. Now, you know, ultimately, you know, we wouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised. Um, you know, and this is where, you know, we might think about, you know, the real wars of the neoliberal era, mm -hmm. like in Iraq um, and the Middle East generally. Uh, you know, Twice where, in Iraq. Twice no. in Iraq. Really from 1991, 
you know, oh. down to yesterday. Yeah. And, um, you know, what you see there is what you, in, in a concentrated way, is what we see all over the, all over the world, which is, you know, a sclerotic economic growth that is increasingly incapable of putting people to work, you know, large numbers of young men who's, who aren't starving, right? Mm -hmm. They're not starving, you know, I mean, it, Egypt is a fairly poor country, but that's not where the greatest, uh, the greatest political instability was. The greatest political instability was in fairly well-to-do Arab countries. Um, you know, they had oil wealth, and that was enough to be able to provide, you know, a kind of welfare state, um, you know, to, to alleviate the worst sorts of poverty, right? Baghdad is not Cairo, you know, much less um, Calcutta. Mm -hmm. And, and yet you have, you know, half the young, you know, the younger generation that's not really able to participate in society. You know, they're increasingly urbanized, of course. And, you know, they, pro they provided a kind of ready-made um, audience for political agitation. Now, you, you know, that could have been an opportunity for the left, but it wasn't. You know, it was an opportunity for, for far right-wing uh, political actors. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is where, you know, we need to, you know, because I think when we look at something like the DSA, you know, when we look at what, uh, you know, Bosco or, you know, I was reading, you know, Ben Burgess on, you know, what would socialism look like in the pages of Jacobin, you know, and they talk about cooperatives and limiting the power of the market, et cetera, you know, as, you know, as though the issue of socialism was about, you know, whether markets are, you know, efficiency maximizing or not. Right. It's not about that. It's about the fact that capitalism doesn't need us. It does. You know, there's all of these people who don't have jobs, right? That the working right. class is set against each other and cooperatives aren't going to address that and mm. speculating about how, what forms of market socialism, you know, they don't get around the question of the, need for the working class's self-organization as a way, as a, as a project ultimately of coming to terms with its own crisis, the contradictions amongst workers internationally and within countries. And so just to say that again, that, I have my own, I have my own critique of um, Burgess's uh, attachment to workers co-ops, right? I have my own particular critique, but your critique is that it's, um, a way to it doesn't escape from a nationalist orientation or uh or, or a local kind of localist uh, orientation and it does it these co-ops will not be the uh institutions which can um I think bring that, the internet the international working class together politically is that what you're i think saying? that I, I think that secretly that there's an assumption 
you know, or there's a relatively unstated assumption, you know, that most people are going to be on welfare. Right. That. Well, I've, I talked at length you know, with you know, the words, about they this. talk about the economy. It's like, okay, yeah, but like, how are you going to deal with the problem of the, the fact that some people work 10 hours and other people work none? Right. I don't see like what they're talk what the relevance of what they're talking about is to that problem, you know, or even building the strength of organized labor. Right. Right. As a constituency of the Democratic Party. Right. 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 It's just going to look like a racket. You know, it's going to look like a way of keeping the unemployed out. Right, because obviously organized labor is going to say if you fire one of us, then the next person you hire is the person that you fired. Mm-hmm. Right? Is because yeah, yeah. they're going to be a member of the union, right? Or mm-hmm. if you fired them, you have to find a place for them somewhere else in the company. That sort of thing. That's what I mean by it. it's like a labor brokerage racket. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But what about all of the vast neighborhoods of unemployed people mm-hmm. around that factory? Mm-hmm. Right. You, to be able to, to begin to deal with that, you're going to have to start talking about politics, right, about socialist working class politics, not talking about operate about, you know, if you're talking about operating within the Democratic Party, what you're saying is we're going to pension them off. We're going to UBI them. We're going to welfare state them, whatever. And what I'm trying to point out with an example like Iraq, just to be very simplistic, is that. That doesn't solve the problem, right? The problem is, you know, is then going to be that you have in effectively a two-tier caste system of people who work and people who don't. I mean, we already have a thing. You know, we already have that, which is why working-class people hate people on welfare. You know, I heard you mention this about um, in, in the Matt Christmas. Christman interview, you were talking about a friend that you'd met who, you know, took great pride in the fact that she earned her living and she had utter contempt for the possibility for the prospect of going on food stamps or applying for welfare. Right. Including unemployment. Right. And I, I know exactly what she's talking about. I mean, I I've been unemployed in my life and gone on to apply for unemployment and i'm just like this is too fucking humiliating i'm not going to do it mm. right i'm not going to tell so you you've paid into unemployment you know it's like it's yeah, not, but, it's know, not how like- do i show them that i'm looking for a job every week oh yeah <laughs> you know well, it doesn't make any goddamn sense doug i mean well, you know, I, d- I did. I'm a I, history I, professor. I, like, I, was, I, don't I, have on, a I was on unemployment for over a year once, right around the time of the economic crisis. And um, I looked for work, uh, but I also started this podcast right. while I was on unemployment. Um mm-hmm. So there's some. I'm not, saying, I'm not. I'm not shaming anybody. I'm just. Oh, saying, I know. I know. I'm just saying. I know you're not. But I'm just saying. Ultimately, because like, ultimately, there's real substance to it, right? Um, there is. You know, no, there's, look, there's real look. substance to the fact that it's only through a job that you can really get away from your life circumstances that you can change your life circumstances. Like if you really want, you know, 
to get out of your mother's basement and grow up or, you know, go live in a place where no one's going to bother you about your gender or sexual preference. And you're going to be surrounded by people who, you know, accept or don't care. Right. You got to get a job, you know, young people, you know, if you want to be, you know, if you want to be like a gay person, right. Rather than trying to change the mind of like your small town, you're going to move to New York or Chicago or San Francisco where people either don't bother you or accept it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what I, you know, and, and the same thing is true just in a thousand ways. Work is important. You know, when people say people would rather have a job to make the same amount of money that they could be given by welfare. Now, that's a, a bit of a stretch. People are always happy to be given money. But, you know, they are pointing to the reality of, of, of work as a social relation in this society, right? That it's a capitalist society. And that means that it's a bourgeois society. It may be a bourgeois society that's in self-contradiction, but it's a society based on labor. It's a society built by the revolt of the third estate. It's a society that has one caste, the caste of people who work, who produce, right? And if you're unproductive, you know, there's, no re- there's a reason why people on welfare get onto drugs and have all kinds of health problems. And it's not just about the lack of resources. And all of those questions just get bracketed out. Mm-hmm. Right. And of course, those things have political implications, which is what I was trying to say about like the rise of Islamism in the Middle East. We're coming up on about 53 minutes. What I'm thinking would be good uh, is if we uh, either started a second stream, I think we should start a second stream and record for the Patreon. And what I want to talk to you about is continue this uh, because, uh, you know, a lot of what you were saying right now made a lot of sense to me from a perspective of socialist, but it also could be taken up. Uh, the arguments that how uh, ignobling and, and uh, uh, you know, worthwhile the work is, mm-hmm. um, is often taken up by people um, on the right. Um, and even people like the, the, the person who's most interesting to me who talks about this is a guy named Mickey Kaus, who is a former Marxist who, you know, does a podcast um, uh, and uh, former editor of the New Republic. And he was big into in the 90s. He was a proponent of Clinton's welfare reform. And now he is against the child um, credit or the, the, the tax credit for children that the Democrats are trying to push through. He doesn't. He hates UBI because he feels because he says he's for social equality, not necessarily economic equality, but social equality. He likes America because you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a mechanic or a professor. You, you know, we're all there's an equality in the in the civil society, in everyday life, and and that that is undermined by the welfare system. That that is undermined. I mean, I'll say just just two things, and then we can uh, take yeah. a break. Um, you know, all of these things are under the you know, should be understood by people listening to us as you know 
if there was socialism, if there was a left, this is how we might think about things. In other words, this is how things were thought about in the past. Mm -hmm. And in the past, um, I, you know, I said at the beginning of this discussion, I mentioned the fact that socialists were not in favor of the welfare state. But if welfare state provisions were instituted in law, as for instance, they were in Imperial Germany, they were opposed to having those benefits withdrawn. Because then what you're doing is you're actually enacting the brutal the, the real problem with welfare in the political level, which is that it makes people dependent upon the state. Right. We saw a bit of this, for instance, when you know with when in effect, well, really the Democrats said if you get fired for failing to get a COVID vaccination, you can't go on welfare, right? That is outrageous, mm -hmm. right? Welfare is either available to everyone or it isn't, right? Now, if not getting- Unemployment, unemployment is not, by the way, which is why it's not welfare, but because- if you're fired for cause or if you quit, right, uh, then you're not eligible. And by saying you can't get unemployment if you quit because you refuse to be vaccinated, they're saying that's just cause for termination, in which case you can't get unemployment. Um, right. The American welfare state has real problems, and it's not quite the dole. Um, yes, no. I grant you that. And that's why, you know, there's vast numbers of people making semi-fraudulent claims about um, disability, right? Because they're, they're trying to get on a kind of a permanent welfare. And, you know, I'm not here to blame them for that. Um, the, yeah. the other thing that I wanted to say is that... Um, the issue of you know, the dignity of labor isn't the project of socialism, right? Mm -hmm. It's a crisis, you know, but right now, what the vast majority of people have, you know, this is a society of this is a society based on ownership. It's a society based on property. Now that property is constantly in crisis and disintegrating, whether, you know, private capital becomes monopoly capital and becomes tied to the state and transformed as a form of property all the time. That happens on many, many levels. Property is destroyed in, you know, which is another point about, you know, it's not exactly market society. Um, but the, the real issue for socialists is the destruction of our property in ourselves. And, you know, we do still live in a society where, as Adam Smith said, every man is a merchant, even if the only thing that he has to sell is his own labor. And, you know, if you are 
trying to get a job. You know, if you want to, if you want to have like a sense of social security in this society, you want to have a job where you know that your boss knows that you make him money, right? That is the most secure you can be in, you know, assuming that your boss is making money and therefore he's going to stay in business and he's not thinking of firing you because you've made yourself indispensable. Now that, you know, that's what I mean by the dignity of labor. I mean, there's a real indignity to being expendable or actually expended. And it's why, um, it's why socialists called labor in capitalism wage slavery, right? Slavery is undignified, obviously, right? It is an ignoble condition in society. And I don't know if that's, if, if that's not PC to say, but it's the fact, right? It's, it's if you are a slave, just as if you're in the bottom of a caste society in India, and somebody says something harsh to you or vicious to you or, um, you know, spits on you or, you know, says something untoward to your wife or to your children. You don't you don't get to answer. Yeah, right. You're, it's a cringing position. It's a position. Right? And, and what what you're saying when you're saying that people are dependent upon the state or potentially dependent upon the state is that you're saying that they're made essentially beggars of the state, right? The whole project of bourgeois society is one of overcoming slavery and being a beggar. I mean, that is Adam Smith's example, mm -hmm. right? He says, nobody wants to beg. We don't want to appeal to the goodwill of other people in order to live. Right? We don't want to have to appeal to the goodwill of the baker and the butcher and the brewer. It doesn't, he's not saying the way that um, Saurabh Arman, Ahmani is, I'm sorry, Ahmadi is suggesting that it's a cold and heartless society. What he's saying is we get to make our friends based on our judgment of their character. We get to choose who we associate with but we can still live even if nobody likes us and we don't like anybody else so long as we've got some money and so long as we've paid into society through our labor right that's all that i'm trying to say is that we still live in capitalism and it you know talking about like ubi and these things as solutions because these people talk about it as though it's post-capitalist i know right and really what they're pointing towards is dystopia yeah marcuse talked about that but you know what L listen what i want to do is um i want to yep. pick up the question of wage slavery again uh in the second half um and um and the dignity of work 
and also maybe this anti-work movement that had a moment um let's see what you think of that mm-hmm. um and return to jackman but i think um this is a great hour i think it went really well spencer and and uh, i hope people will tune in to the patreon as well